content. I mean, I did a, I did a, a, a gig at Google, right, for free, for free. And Google's got some money, okay? Google's got some money. Um, but I did it for free. And the reason I did it for free was because... Welcome to the RD Jobs Podcast, where you will not only hear up close and personal stories of dietitians in unconventional careers, but you also get to interact and tell me who you want to hear from and get your questions answered. From my experience in counseling weight loss clients, to working as a food service director, to my time in corporate nutrition at Google, I knew that a conventional path was not for me. Tag along with me as I ask dietitians to share their stories on how they created their own path in the dietetic world. So if you know me at all, you know I am not someone who gets overly giddy about anything in life, but I can genuinely tell you I feel so freaking excited for you guys to hear this episode. I know we'll be featuring dietitians who have very specific specialties, but this particular episode is one that I think every single dietitian can actually benefit from. One of Mary's passions is talking about sustainability in the dietetic world. Now, yes, this can be a very serious topic, but she addresses it with such ease and joy that she makes the conversation approachable. Mary is an integrative and eco-dietitian, a professor, a writer, a speaker, and so much more. During our conversation, we broached the topics of freelancing, negotiating compensation, and even how to manage your stress levels when you have your hand in several different projects at once. Okay, so let's hear from Mary. Starting off the podcast, you have finished your nutrition degree, completed your dietetic internship, and passed the RD exam. What was the very first step for you as a brand new dietitian, and how did it lead you to where you are today? Wow, that was about 14 years ago that I, or maybe 13, and I decided to hang out my shingle uh, in, with a private practice was really my first move because I really wanted to have a freelance life. I did not want to be beholden to some kind of schedule where I had to show up every single day. Right. And so I got started. I had already been doing a bit of a private practice as a certified nutritionist during my internship. And okay. so I just broadened that and expanded it mm-hmm. and also took on a part-time role in a hospital filling in for somebody who was on maternity leave okay. um, in, as an outpatient dietitian. Yeah. So that's where, where I landed that first those first couple of years. Okay, awesome. And so did you eventually move fully to private practice? Did you like working in the clinical setting? I, it was not my favorite. Um, although the place where I worked was incredibly interesting because I got to work in so many different departments because I was floating and, um, it was a richly diverse and culturally varied, um, population. So that was fascinating for me. And I really appreciated that. But again, I am somebody who's always enjoyed independence and autonomy. And so the more freelance private practice life fit more with my personality at the time and was more in keeping with what I was looking for and how I wanted to spend my energy. You're speaking my language. Yes. <laughs> it come, It doesn't come without its hardships, though. I mean, we we love feeling all flexible and groovy and like, I can do whatever I want on a Wednesday at two o'clock. And then sometimes you're thinking to yourself, oh, man, I just wish I knew exactly what I was doing every day mm-hmm. on a more consistent mm-hmm. basis. So it it really has its ups and downs, the freelance life. 
It absolutely does. And I, I fully understand that. And I think that that's something that I usually like to touch on as well when someone brings it up, just because uh, I feel like being an entrepreneur, it can be really glamorized. And mm. so um, kind of giving people a little bit of a dose of reality, I think is really important. Not to say, you know, oh, don't do it. Don't become a freelancer. Don't start your own private practice. But I think it's important for them to understand that there's multiple parts to that gig. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think you've got to enter into it knowing that you will be juggling dozens of balls at one time up in the air and feeling a sense of insecurity as well as a sense of power, right? I don't mm-hmm. think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think you can feel incredible excitement and uh, embracing of, a, of an adventurous time and feel you know business savvy and you can also feel a sense of oh my gosh I I don't know where I'm going next there's a sense of insecurity or is this going to work out so going into it knowing that you've got that as a as a potential path in or part of your pathway um, I think is important to know oh yeah 100% so before we move on to your next steps in your career um, you started your private practice right when you graduated, which first of all is quite ambitious. Um, I'm sure it helped that you already kind of had your thing going, but for students who let's say they want that, they have this thought where, you know, it's private practice or die. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but they're not sure how to start. They're not sure how they can help people without actually being a registered dietitian yet legally. So how did you circumvent that? I live in Washington state okay. where you can get a certification as a nutritionist where you become a CN and mm-hmm. with that certification I had my master's degree I you are able to practice as a as a nutritionist. Okay. So um I basically had started to collect a, a, a group of people on a newsletter. Mm-hmm. So um, was basically building a community. I was teaching in the community, were all different kinds of workshops, most of which were free, but that was a mm-hmm. great way to be able to gather names and let people know where my expertise was and what kind of a practitioner I was. So a lot of it started just by building a baseline of, of people who I hoped might be interested in my services because they had seen me at a talk or mm-hmm. had uh, met me in a in some other um, environment where we got to know each other. And I would say like, this is what I do. And can I grab your email? And it, it was, it, it was not a fast or easy process. So um, it's not something that some, somehow magically appears and you've got you know, 10 hundred people, which would be, I think a thousand um, <laughs> people <laughs> clamoring at your doorstep for an appointment. It's, it definitely, it's a, it's a building process. And I'm finding that now I'm not in private practice now, but I'm finding it is, it continues to be a building process mm-hmm. all the time. Absolutely. And I think what you said is really important about how you did a lot of community uh, events and sometimes or most of the time they were free. That's a really, really important note for people to understand. You're going to work, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to work for free a lot of the time. You have to make a name for yourself. You have to build relationships. And I'm curious if you kind of agree with that. I I agree with it somewhat. I think at the time it was the only option that I saw. Mm. The thing that I think about now is that I, my, my impression was that I did a lot of work for free because I didn't feel like 
I knew enough or was experienced enough, which Mm. is in part true. However, if you spent two years, four years, three years, whatever, um, however much of time you've spent learning and growing as as a practitioner or as an educator, you do still have skills that can be compensated and should be compensated because, you know, if someone went to school for business, uh, business, they got a business degree, right? They got their master's in business. Um, you would hire them. You would pay them money to consult with you or to give a class. Maybe not everybody, but I do think dietitians tend to undersell themselves as it relates to to money. And looking back now, I wish I had said, hey, I'd love to come and talk to with your organization. Um, I, I just need something like even just $50 so that there is at least some level of monetary compensation right. and value that's attached to just your knowledge and the three years and the thousands <laughs> of dollars that you put into your education, right? I mean, that that needs to be compensated, um, even if it's on, on a smaller level than somebody who maybe is giving a similar presentation who has had five years or 10 years mm-hmm. of experience. Mm-hmm. I love that. And you're right. You're absolutely right. I think we sell ourselves short a lot of the time and it's something that we can avoid if we know how to do. And and that being said to Maria, is that I, I also feel like if there is an incredible opportunity to be able to reach a community that is your target market mm-hmm. and it is absolutely not going to be a paid gig but it is going to potentially help you build something or give you an opportunity to speak to a community about a topic that maybe you wouldn't otherwise have gotten an opportunity mm-hmm. to do, mm-hmm. then I, I do feel like, you know, you're weighing the pros and cons of that. You're weighing what's the ROI here. Even though this is free, it's going to get me a, a credit on my resume or it's going right. to get me an opportunity to network with this person. I mean, I did a, I did a, a, a gig at Google, right, for mm-hmm. free for free. And Google's got some money. Okay. (laughs) Google's got some money. Um, but I did it for free. And the reason I did it for free was because number one, I got to go to Google and they have an amazing cafeteria, Mm -hmm. which I could Mm -hmm. talk about for days. Um, this was again, I don't know, 12 years ago, Mm -hmm. but they filmed it. They filmed it. Mm -hmm. And so then I had I had um, footage of me giving a talk, right? And it was a good film and I could I could send that to people. Hey, I gave a talk on this subject. They could see my slides. They could see my presentation style. Yeah. That for me, I thought of that as an investment, right? Mm-hmm. As a way to get my name oh, out yeah. there and to, to gather um, an actual uh, calling card that I could send to people. I love that. Fun little fact, I worked at Google for a little bit. Oh my gosh. It, it, Did you have a... Did you enjoy oh the cafeteria? Gosh. Yes, it's just as amazing as you think. <laughs> wow, I couldn't believe it. it was. It was like it was like you know going in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as a dietitian. That's oh, what it felt yeah. like to me. I was like, oh, oh my, my gosh, like, their oh. food culture and the amount of work that they put into their food program is absolutely insane. Yeah, and they they do a lot around making sure that people are are nourished, but yeah. also they have a whole sustainability piece, mm-hmm. which for me is where I'm really focusing my yeah. attention. So um, I, I think I saw the dietitian who works for Google or the dietitian as if they've mm-hmm. only got one, but what, one dietitian. <laughs> and she seemed to have such high job satisfaction and was really making a difference there, both mm-hmm. as it relates to people's health, but also as it related to how Google as a company was trying to be more 
uh, green, more eco-friendly yep. with their yep. food. So I thought I was very impressed and happy to see that. Oh yeah. It's, I can't say enough good things about them. They work really, really hard, not only to make their employees happy and healthy, but then like you said, the, the sustainability aspect of it. Yeah. Okay. So then um, you were doing freelance work. You were running your private practice. What were the next steps for you? Well, while I was running my private practice, I started doing a ton of speaking. So okay. I was able to connect again with communities, um, with what's called uh, EAP or employee, oh my gosh, employee assistance program where mm -hmm. someone would hire me to come and talk to different businesses. So again, that's where I started speaking more. Uh, I started doing a little bit of teaching. I also started to work in a clinic as a teaching supervisor for a student run clinic or a teaching okay. clinic at the mm -hmm. The, the university where I attended, and um, and then grad. I'm going to skip through a bunch of years mm -hmm. <laughs> of doing that, mm -hmm. and then I landed at a company for four years that was a telehealth company that looked at functional medicine labs. We looked at the microbiome. We looked at genetics. And we were essentially doing tons of research, but also nutritional counseling and coaching over the phone with um, a huge population of people whose data we were then gathering to try and understand the role that genetics played in health mm -hmm. and the role that the microbiome played in health. And oh, um, that. so that was a full-time gig that I left my freelance life my practice mm -hmm. and engaged in that for four years where I just learned a ton. I felt like I basically got like a mini PhD in <laughs> nutrigenetics and blood labs and microbiome and um, functional medicine and personalized medicine, systems medicine. So um, so that's where I was for f about four years of, of my life until about almost just about two years ago. Okay. What made you decide that you wanted to leave that environment and choose something different? So I've always been somebody who's been very interested in supporting the environment and living in a, in a very sustainable way. And what I started realizing a number of years ago as the climate crisis was really coming to, to a head in terms of my understanding of how dire the situation was, I was also realizing that our food system plays a huge role. Right. And anything that involves our food system or involves food needs to involve and does involve dietitians and nutrition professionals. So I was beginning to understand that dietitians could play a huge role in changing the dynamic of the food system, in helping to, to transform how we approach food from an environmental perspective. And that's where I have been focusing my attention for um, over the last several years, and I'm really jazzed about this this space where I feel like dietitians can make a huge difference. Um, the sustainability aspect, I that is something that I feel like we all have such a passion about, but you don't really hear about it a lot with dietitians. And so, one, I was curious: Do you feel like there's more of the? I mean, there's always more of a need, but do you feel like there's a growing area of opportunity there for dietitians, or do you feel like it's a pretty pretty well known topic? Mariah, I think this is going to be the next big thing in dietetics. Ooh. My feeling is that there's already a subset of dietitians who have been interested and working in sustainability for, for years, right? There's a, right. there's a DPG group, a dietetic practice group called yeah. Hunger and Environmental yeah. Nutrition. So mm -hmm. this is on people's radar when we think about sustainability as it relates to institutional eating and um, and and people who work in research. and But I think what is happening is we are 
having a much better understanding of number one, uh, issues around how we're growing our food and the impact that's mm -hmm. having on the environment and the impact that that is having on health. And that's yeah. where dietitians, I think, can come in. There's a lot of information out there and I've attended just hundreds of webinars and conferences over the past I'm sure. Oh my goodness, especially being online with COVID. But uh -huh. dietitians are very often missing from the table, uh, from the discussion, and they are the ones who I think can really bring in the health and food and nutritional counseling and behavior change piece that is very, very necessary for the changes mm -hmm. that are being proposed to actually be made. So right. we, I think it's, it's hugely exciting, and I just don't think we've totally tapped into it. And the reason is because there's a lack of education. There's a lack of understanding and knowledge about what food systems are, about what mm -hmm. a sustainable and resilient and equitable food system is, and also the role that the food system is playing in our environmental crisis right now, and actually how that can be reversed through dietary changes, agricultural changes, food waste reduction, um, all of which are places where a dietitian can beautifully um, fit in and help to orchestrate. You're right. There is not a lot of teaching. There's not a lot of information about this when it comes to sustainability. I remember in both of my degree programs, you know, you have maybe a couple sections in one class about sustainability and you, it gets touched on every now and then, but it's not really something that is heavily focused on. Mm -hmm. So if someone was really interested, like they're all about it, they do their own research on sustainability and what they can do to help the environment and reduce their carbon footprint and all of that, what would you suggest someone could do in order to one, learn more about it and to be more involved in the sense of the dietitian world? So I think there's a lot of things that people can do. I mean, there are numerous free certificate courses out there. There's one mm -hmm. through Johns Hopkins, which is just an introduction to the food system, which is fantastic. There's okay. a paid course that's through the Hunger and Environmental Nutrition Group that is, I think, 80 bucks for four really comprehensive and great modules that just gives you a wonderful foundation, right? But then there are so many free webinars and uh, free conferences and some paid conferences as well through a variety of different organizations, um, one of which is uh, an organization that I'm a part of as well called Planetary Health Collective, which is a group of both dietitians, but also nutrition professionals, chefs, people working somewhere in the nutrition field who are interested in how uh, we can support planetary health. And we've got lots of different articles um, and webinars coming up. So I think, you know, just beginning to start reading, to look at the papers um, to, and I do have a place on my website that has a bunch of recommended reading, both for the layperson and for the person who really wants to dive deep into some of the, the more nitty gritty research, you know, yeah. from the PubMed articles. So I'm happy yeah. to share that link um, as, a, as, a, as a resource for people. Uh, but I also think you know, just having these conversations with fellow dietitians, because once you start having them, I'm telling you, it opens up a whole world. Like the more mm -hmm. I've had these conversations, the more someone said, oh, well, have you met this person? Have you met this person? I mean, I spent 2019 having, I think, 40 to 50 informational interviews with dietitians and other professionals who are working in the sustainability field just to understand what do you do on a daily basis? What, what is your life right. like? Wh where do you see dietitians fitting in? Having those conversations was so helpful 
to gain an understanding, number one, of some of the major issues, but also where I could see myself fitting in with my specific skill set um, and background. Mm-hmm. Right. Is it something where you, where a student or a dietitian who's already in the field, where they would have to get special certifications in order to work in a field like this, or does it just come with um, having more knowledge on the topic? I think it's going to shift from it. There's so many different ways that someone could be involved, right? So, I mean, I think mm-hmm. the the bringing in, no matter what, bringing in the health piece is is a is a really important part of this because we know that what's good for the environment is also good for the human. So this is where dietitians can be a bridge no matter what. Even if they don't know much about sustainability yet, um, they can still help people to understand when you eat in a way that supports climate or when you eat in a way that supports the environment, you actually are also eating in a way that supports human health. So I'll give you an example. You know, there are a lot of food brands out there that are working with dietitians. And there are a lot of food brands out there that have some kind of a sustainability initiative. Maybe it's even a restaurant or maybe it's mm-hmm. um, a company. And the dietitian can come in and and that maybe that company is saying, hey, we're, we are making sure that we're sourcing sustainable ingredients or we're making sure that we have a climatarian option on the menu. There's a great uh, company out there. I think it's on the East Coast called Just Salad. And they have a climatarian menu <laughs> where you can choose things. And a place where I could see dietitians fitting in there is they can be the person who says, yeah, climatarian menu. And this also is really rich in vitamin C, which is important for immune system. Mm-hmm. It is rich in phytochemicals, mm-hmm. which helps, you know, to protect your body from inflammation. It's also, so we can connect the dots there as we are starting to work with organizations, with companies. Um, and if you are working in the clinical setting, if somebody is working at a hospital or at WIC or at a a school or any kind of food service job, you can help to dictate where you're sourcing the food, what food is being served, right? We know that um, high amounts of animal consumption is actually playing a huge role in greenhouse gas emissions and playing a huge role in deforestation. So that is something that the dietitian can help to design or redesign with that menu you can redesign what's being fed to kids. Um, You can help with food waste reduction, which is responsible for 8% of our greenhouse gases. So there's so many ways that that dietitians can fit in at the jobs that they are already doing just by getting vocal and making suggestions. Okay. And that makes a lot more sense when you put it that way. I mean, this is something that needs to be integrated into every part of our life. So why not <laughs> have it be in in jobs that we already hold? It does. And, you know, I mean, I also, so I've been teaching um, at a university for the past uh, five or six years. And mm-hmm. I teach physicians, or physicians-to-be. I teach uh, students who are in an acupuncture program. And I teach nutrition mm-hmm. students. And okay. even in the, 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 the classes that I'm teaching, which are about macronutrients or about micronutrients, I make sure that sustainability enters into the conversation because mm-hmm. we can't separate it, right? If we're thinking right. about micronutrients, the quality of food that is grown in soil that is healthy and resilient and perhaps grown without uh, all kinds of numerous chemical inputs that degrade the soil and impact the plant that has an impact on micronutrient status, right? So I make sure that the students know that there is a connection um, between 
the health of the environment and the health of the food that we are eating and the health of the human that you may be treating in future uh, endeavors. So that it just gets it just gets it. Invited into every conversation that I have as I teach, I do a lot of presentation and speaking. I always bring the eco component into at least one slide because mm-hmm. it is connected. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, as you said, great to just include it in in the threads of everything that we do in some way. Yes, yes, absolutely. So when you are not teaching, what does an average day look like to you, or do you even have an average day? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have an average day. It's, but what I've been trying to do is um, block out time in my calendar so that I'm saying, okay, I'm going to spend two hours, even if I'm not teaching during that time, I still got to prep for teaching. I still got to mm-hmm. grade the, te- the teaching that I've, mm-hmm. that I've given. So I build into that, but I'm also doing a lot of speaking. So either part of my day is spent speaking or at a conference or a summit or a podcast like this or Mm -hmm. some other kind of interview or building a slide deck or tweaking a slide deck. I am always working on at least 10 slide decks at one for uh, once for a variety of different topics that I'm speaking uh, at upcoming engagements. So for me, I'm always looking at the research and gosh, I just saw something today. Let me make sure I put that into the slide on, on, um, on, on thyroid health because this this feels like a great article. So there's that. And then there's also the seeking out of opportunities, right? Of, of building, I'm building slide decks, but I'm also building relationships and building connections mm-hmm. and building a network. So that feels like part of my job every single day as well. Is how can I connect with other dietitians, other practitioners, other people um, in the sustainability space on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then um, I have a podcast. Um, mm-hmm. So part of my day can be spent either working on listening and editing the podcast, promoting the podcast, um, planning the next podcast, recording the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also going to be a podcast host for um, another food company. So Oregon, which is a, yeah, yeah so they're going to be starting a podcast um, oh. shortly and I'm going to be hosting that. So that's, you know, that's been a component of my day is helping to build that and plan that and, 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 and work on, on that, um, as part of my life as well. So oh, my so life, exciting. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And mm-hmm. so really, you know, Mariah, I, th- I just think of my life as like a constellation of freelance gigs and side projects. <laughs> um, just, just a lot of different things going on, um, which as we started saying in the beginning can be great. Cause it feels like, Oh, I got this and that mm-hmm. life, life's always a little different. But um, for someone like myself too, who tends to, get overexcited about a lot of things um it can it can lead for some freneticism throughout the day too that i need to 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 rein in sometimes and and try and refocus right do you experience so, that um it's so funny i was just going to say i feel like that's a common thing that i'm hearing from dietitians i feel like none of us can say no to a project <laughs> we all want our hand in like 20 different things um but i think to, for me personally that's what brings me joy when oh. I know that I am working on this project with this person and then I'm contributing to this over here and then I'm doing my own thing for myself, I, I don't know what it is about it. Um, and yes, sometimes I run myself ragged, but it's so fulfilling for me yeah. to just constantly be contributing or participating in something else. You know, I'm, I'm an extrovert, so socializing is my jam. 
Mm-hmm. Like, that has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a, it's funny because as somebody who's a freelance, both an extrovert and an introvert can really thrive. You know, people who want to just spend more time alone, don't want to interact. There's so much that you can do, whether you're writing or consulting, you know, via email. And then also what you're saying is, yeah, just disconnecting with people and building and creating new relationships and right. um, flitting from this to that. It's it, it can be exciting. Absolutely. So in regards to, you know, you do freelance and consulting and then you also teach, does one side of that or is one side of that more lucrative than the other, teaching versus freelancing? It's such a good question. And I will say that it the, the variation in my compensation is sort of astounding to me because <laughs> I, um, I really do try and advocate for myself to 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 make sure that I, I am compensated in a way that I feel is is worth my time and energy. However, um, I also have to weigh that piece around opportunity, right? So mm-hmm. I love teaching so much. Um, love the engagement, love working with students, love seeing the aha, love mm-hmm. inspiring them to think differently outside of the box. But as an I'm an adjunct, right? Um, and I have to tell you, the the pay is not great. Um, and but I do it because I love it. I love the opportunity. I love having a teaching credit on my resume. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's going to afford me new gigs. I love being connected to a university. So when I think of compensation, there's monetary compensation, but there's also association and experience compensation that I build mm-hmm. into that. Now, at some point, that <laughs> that may not feel as um, fulfilling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but for, for now, that's where I'm at. But with the other gigs, you know, very often it is about who's funding it. So obviously if you're working with um, a brand or if you're being um, tapped to speak at a conference that's being run by a, a larger company, then I definitely am much more well-paid um, when it comes to that. Right. I also did a gig for 350.org in Colorado, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a, a climate activist organization. And they paid me 50 bucks to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I-, I can do that because that really matters to me. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, you know, it's building, it's building the, um, the creds, right. And getting the right. name out there. Right. But, you know, getting paid $50 and getting paid $2,000, <laughs> For, for a, it's pretty different, um, and it's really about you know who's running the show. Yeah. So when you are approached with an invitation to speak somewhere, do they typically give you a price that they want to offer you, or do they ask you what you would like to be paid? It's shifted this year for me. I think because I've become much more of a well-known speaker and mm-hmm. and and have spoken much more. Uh, so in the past, I think a lot of groups have said, "Hey, we have we can pay you two fifty, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, that has been a, a typical amount that gets paid to speakers, okay. and and that has just changed this year. I have said like my speaking fee is a thousand dollars. So there you go. And I've had people say, no problem. Sounds great. And I've had others say, I don't think we can, we can swing that. Would you be willing to take 750? And I've said yes, mm-hmm. but at least I have in my mind, what is it worth it to me? The amount of work, not only that goes into the speaking gig 
and the preparation and the 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 space that it takes in my brain. And yes, I do have to to think about that because I think about these gigs, right? I'm thinking about everything that I'm doing. It's not just out of my head, but also being paid for experience for 15 years of mm-hmm. speaking, mm-hmm. of working, of reading every damn paper I can get my hands on on this topic, of spreading the word on A, B, C, and D. That experience I have now built into my fee structure um, as something that I feel like is a, is valuable, right? It's a skill set. So there you have it. I, I love those answers. And you're absolutely right. Your experience plays a huge role in things. But the first thing that you said, it hit really hard with me. You have to think about how much time you're spending on this, not just when you're speaking, but before and after. So a perfect, yeah. this goes right into being an entrepreneur as well. Your brain is always on. I don't know always. about yours, but my brain is always on to the point where I have a notebook by my bed, or I'll pick up my phone at two o'clock in the morning because I've woken up and I've had an idea about something and I already know I'm going to forget it when I wake up right. in the morning. So, yes. so you have to consider that and what kind of, not necessarily stress it's going to cause you, but it, it will take up a lot of your time. It does indeed. And, and, and I have been trying to work on even saying the word stress because Mm -hmm. I feel like it's so easy to toss that around and I Mm -hmm. have done so. And I'm really trying to modify my language and say, my week is abundant. My (laughs) life is full. My head feels rich with ideas. You know, does that always work? Um, No, but I, I, I do tend towards God. I think, I think, I think, and I'm trying to breathe. I'm trying to meditate. I'm trying to stiff my lavender oils and stuff to calm down. (laughs) But, um, you know, when you're passionate about something, when you get excited, which it sounds like you do too, Mm -hmm. it is hard to shut that down. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'd I'd rather be more passionate than, than, than dulled, you know? Um, so I, I live with it and, and I'm just working. It's, I think it's a lifelong process of just trying to find ways to, to be at peace with, with my passion. Absolutely. It's an ever-growing process too. It is. You're always going to be working on it. Do you have a technique that helps you to calm your mind? Um, Honestly, meditation, which is such a generic response at this point, but truly it's it's an ongoing struggle for me (laughs) because I'm meditating and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this for myself. 20 minutes. I'm going to lay on the floor. I'm not going to think about anything else. And of course, when you still your mind and you do something different, 50 ideas pop into your head. Right. I've even had, I've had trouble, like I'll go get a massage or something. That's my, one of my big things that I like to do for myself is going and getting a massage. But wow, that hour of having no stimulation, no phone, no advertisements, no computer, no email, your brain just goes crazy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And I, I have to tell myself, you know, if this idea is as good as I think it is, then I will remember it after my hour massage. <laughs> you well, just have I, to focus. <laughs> right. And, and you know, I mean, there's pretty strong research around that too, that when we actually stop the activity mm-hmm. of our brain or stop, stop the um, uh, engagement of our brain, that is actually when our creative side of our brain takes over. And that yeah. is when the, when the ideas do come. So a lot of people have those ideas in the shower, right? Because yeah. they're just doing something that's not necessarily actively thinking. Mm-hmm. One thing that I that I have started doing over the past several years is I, I have a, a regular activity that I call DCT, which is <laughs> dedicated couch time, where I literally, it's not meditation, 
I just sit on the couch and do nothing for at least five minutes and sometimes 20. I literally just sit there and I st- I'm not listening to a radio. Mm-hmm. I am just staring into space. And it is amazing, not only the ideas that come, but also the consolidation mm-hmm. of ideas or yeah. the solidification of ideas. So maybe I'll be working on a slide deck and I'll go and sit in the couch, do my dedicated couch time. I often have a cup of tea. And, um, and that's when something will come into my head and I'll go like, oh, I haven't made that connection in that slide deck yet. It, that's That slide won't make sense until I add this piece of information, which will enhance the learning of that original slide that I was just working mm-hmm. on. You know, And I wouldn't have had that realization or those kinds of realizations, I don't think, if I hadn't allowed for my brain to stop mm-hmm. and consolidate and make sense of the information that's flitting and floating around in there. Right. So let me ask you this. I have a tendency to recognize um, when I've just hit a wall. I'm like, there's nothing productive that's going to come out of my mind right now. I know that I need to walk away. And Mm. in that case, you know, a couch time, what did you call it? Dedicated couch time. DCT. DCT. (laughs) That would work perfectly in those moments, you know. But some people... Some people can't recognize when it's time to walk away for a second. And so what would your suggestion for that be? I think everyone's going to be a little bit different, right? But Mm -hmm. um, what you identified, which is that I'm reading the same sentence over again, Mm -hmm. or I don't seem to be as quick as I was an hour ago when I was writing this thing or when I was, um, you know, the speed with which I was able to file this, 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 paper or whatever it is that people are doing. Mm. And I also feel like when we tune in, you know, as dietitians, we're also telling people, we're often telling people to tune into their bodies to figure out their hunger and their full signals. I think this might be similar where you can actually feel the sensation in your head of almost like saturation, right? Mm -hmm. That, that it's almost like words are, are, are bumping up against a cement wall and bouncing back. Like they aren't, or concepts, they just aren't sticking, they're bouncing away. Or you've got that headache, or you've got that feeling of like, I don't know, I, after a, a day on the computer, I personally feel magnetic in, in not a good way, in mm-hmm. not a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm electromagnetic, like some, you know, something might, a magnet <laughs> might stick to my forehead. And I know that's when I need to, to step away from the computer and take a break. Right. So just being able to recognize how your body feels, how your brain feels, and what you can do to kind of de-escalate the feeling. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, the people who are going, I'm just going to work straight through, I'm just going to work straight through, we also know that you're less productive. Mm -hmm. So um, even taking that five-minute break can allow for greater productivity Mm -hmm. to to be... uh, to be invited back into your, your work life, um, even just by taking that short stop. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Okay. So very last question. If you could leave our listeners with one piece of advice in regards to sustainability in the dietetic world, what would it be? Wow. (laughs) One piece of advice. That's all I get. (laughs) You can do a couple if you want. That's fine. <laughs> um, it, it's it's a it's it's such an interesting field that I I feel like I want to stick with the advice that we know from the research 
has the biggest bang for the buck as it relates to the environment and climate change. And that is that reducing our industrial animal agriculture and the products from that and increasing plant-based foods um, is going to have the biggest impact mm -hmm. on our environment, mm -hmm. on our health, and on the climate. Mm -hmm. So as, as people who are constantly talking about food and food choices and designing menus and, and helping out with that, this is not about being vegan mm -hmm. or promoting veganism. This is just about reducing the production of of, uh, of animal industrial animal agriculture right. um, as a as a strategy right i couldn't agree more absolutely and it's it's such a simple statement yet so complex at the same time it is it's it's not it's not easy because mm -hmm. there's cultural components there's economic components um there's animal welfare components everyone feels differently about these um and and so it's, it really is just about starting to have this conversation and not necessarily talking about it from a restriction point of view, mm -hmm. but more of a modification point of view, right. at least to begin with. Um, so there's so many changes that I think we as dietitians can, can help to empower others to make, mm -hmm. whether that is fellow dietitians, patients, community members, institutions, academics, um, you know, policies, research, we have our fingers in so many different pots that mm -hmm. as soon as we start having these conversations and educating ourselves, I just think we're going to be superheroes. Oh, I like that. We're going to be superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't want to be a superhero? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Mary. So if someone wants to find out more about what you do, find your podcast, or maybe look up your book, where would they find that information? Thanks so much. Yeah, I have a website. It is marypurdy.co. That's marypurdy.co, mm -hmm. um, where lots of um, information, including those resources I was talking about for further mm -hmm. education are. And then our podcast is called The Nutrition Show. Mm -hmm. So you can find that on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and then, of course, I'm on social media. So please link in or Facebook or Instagram, um, Mary Purdy RD, and um, I'm always happy to continue these kinds of conversations and yeah. help people to, um, you know, find their way to other resources. I love it. Thank you so much. I I have loved this conversation, and it's it's opened my eyes to even more that I couldn't do, and I'm not even in sustainability necessarily, but I can integrate it into my own practice and into the conversations that I have as a dietitian. Well, thank you. And even by today, Mariah, by having today's conversation, you've enabled this to this kind of education to start mm -hmm. for maybe some people who haven't thought about this before. So mm -hmm. I'm grateful to you for giving me this opportunity yeah. and engaging in this dialogue. I seriously could have talked with her forever. I remember halfway through the conversation, I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to go past 30 minutes. <laughs> Anyways, what did you think? I want to hear your opinions. Head over to the Instagram, the RD Jobs Podcast, or hit up the website, the RDJobsPodcast.com, and let me know what you thought. All right, I'll talk to you soon.